wish to say a sincere hello to all listeners of this episode four of Masters of Unlocking. And you know, I not only wish it, but I do it. So, hello. <laughs> and I know, what you, I know what you're thinking, Scott. You're thinking, what a breathy hello that was. Well, yeah. Did you not hear the part about this hello being sincere? It was sincere okay. and sensual. <laughs> I feel that breathy equates not only sensuality, but sincerity. And I, and I feel... That's why during the winter times, uh, when I see everyone's vaporous breath, I understand the world to be a much more serious place than it is in the summertime. And that's all seasonal depression is, you know. <laughs> we, we all see this seriousness spewing from people's mouths like so much pretend smoke from a child pantomiming the enjoyment of a cigarette, and we can't be anything but sad. So I'm fairly certain that's why Valentine's Day takes place in February, actually. It has to be. Fact. It has to be. Uh, plus, the winter prevents blood from flowing, and we all know on Valentine's Day you need blood for your for your wiener stuff and your and your V stuff. Um, <laughs> on that note, oh. I'm Caleb. <laughs> another another you know home run opening to the Masters of Unlocking here, folks. I feel like it's very important that first time listeners have no idea what the hell I'm talking about for the first 20, 20 seconds or so. Um, you know, I feel it's important only because now it gives us an excuse for not building an audience, right? If no one listens, well, it was my fault, and I know it was my fault, right? <laughs> well, and really, from you know, from the intro, that leaves us. That just gives us. It's like a good Barney Stinson mixtape. It's just all rise. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of Valentine's Day and blood, it's all rise. <laughs> I'm Caleb, and I collect video games in the way that dream catchers collect dreams. That is to say, that's not how they work. Uh, and and with me, as always, is Scott. He collects video games and the way that Dreamcatchers collect the trinket budgets from white guilt-ridden tourists in the Southwest. That is to say, quite effectively. And together, <laughs> we are the Masters of Unlocking, a bi-weekly video game news, commentary, and editorializing, I guess, podcast. I'm not really sure if that one fits, but... How are you doing, Scott? You know, I'm doing pretty fantastic. Uh, we had the Nintendo Direct last night. That was exciting mm. as we record this here on, on Thursday. Uh, I think we'll get into that later, but a lot of good stuff coming out of there. Mm, so much good stuff coming out of there and of me when I saw it. God, that's like the third wiener thing. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, before I go any further, um, I'm going to say, Scott, uh, what are you playing now? <laughs> <laughs> well, you will appreciate this because I finished Near Automata. Mm. I, I nailed that platinum. I nailed it so That's hard. Amazing. <laughs> Ew. Gross. <laughs> I am done with this podcast. How dare I? <laughs> well, I, I hope it sounds like, I mean, I assume you liked it if you if you platinumed it. And I must say I'm very impressed by anyone who can platinum most any game. Um, but especially as much as I love this one and went on and on and on and on about this one, um, this didn't even uh, elicit a platinum from me. The only games I've ever platinumed are um, Fallout 4 and and Ratchet and & Clank. And there's really no reason this game should not have also been one of those. So I I, I, I respect you for that. So tell me about Fallout it. Fallout 4 is a pretty impressive platinum in its own right. I have no life. <laughs> uh. Well, you're in good company. <laughs> I no, getting to uh, to Nier here. I I really enjoyed it. Um, so if, if anybody hasn't played it, it's a sort of sci-fi action RPG, action Japanese RPG uh, from Square Enix uh, and developed by um, 
Uh, Come on, you can do it. Platinum? Plat- duh, of course. Platinum. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of thinking it wouldn't... I mean, I was, I'm was. i not going to give this to him, like, but you know what? Hey, that counts as my platinum for like this game. We literally just said the word. <laughs> um, but I, I, had a, I had a great time with it. It's got five sort of main storyline playthroughs. Well, I guess four main storyline playthroughs and five main endings. It's got a whopping 26 endings, one for every letter, and each letter, uh, after you beat the game with a given ending, it comes up with a little note that that corresponds to that ending's letter. Um, But if if anybody is going to be diving into it, I, I highly, highly, highly recommend going through and playing through endings A through E. Um, the, the endings are, or the, the storylines are designed to be played. Uh, and I think Caleb mentioned this uh, a couple episodes ago that it's really one, one story arc and it's designed to play through all four main story arcs. And if you don't, you, it's nowhere near as good of a game. I will say after I finished the first storyline playthrough, um, I thought, yeah, you know, this is a this was a fun game, but I, I think Caleb's smoking something strange <laughs> by thinking this is a you know Breath of the Wild, Horizon Zero Dawn level game. Um, but once you go through and you play through the the subsequent couple of playthroughs, and they're they're not as long as the original playthrough. The original sort of you see all of the meat and potatoes of it, and then you switch through. The second playthrough starts off kind of slowly, starts off kind of repetitive, I thought, um, but then it really picks up and and fills in a lot of the story gaps and a lot of the character development gaps and becomes just a a, a real masterpiece. And I got to say. Uh, you reminded me of something. So first of all, I have to I have to qualify and say, you you implied that I also said this was a Horizon Zero Dawn level game. I have not played Horizon Zero Dawn yet, but I am not backing away from the very real possibility that this could be better than Horizon Zero Dawn. So I, I'm looking forward to making that comparison at some point um, in the near future. Um, but you reminded me uh, the, the 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 continued story elements in this game. Um, you know, you said it very well. It, it's sort of one holistic story, and you really have to kind of experience all of them. The begin the when I first started playing uh, was playthrough B, in which you play as what was in playthrough A, a side character essentially, a, a support character. You play as a support character in B, and the game literally makes you follow the path of storyline character B as the storyline character A path went on uh, originally. It, it's so literal, in fact, that. Um, the only reason I'm going to say something that probably not a lot of people have caught, I only caught because I made a huge mistake, and I'll tell you why. There's there's a section um, when you're playing through storyline A, I would call it probably part of the tutorial aspect, and it's kind of walking you through the menus. Um, and it, it kind of is showing you where certain things are in your menus and how to navigate your menus. Um, well, I made the mistake of when I was playing that the first time, I got distracted in real life and had to put the controller down and go tend to my, my children or my cat or something. I can't remember. Um, but I didn't pause it. I just left it on the menu screen thinking, well, I'll just leave it on the menu screen. Well, when you're playing through and play through B, you as the, as, as the, uh, second, as, as this new character, the side character have to actually sit through that same amount of time that you spent on those menus. Like you literally are watching your original playthrough navigate the menus because again you are a side character so in real life so in in the game's existence as a side character you would be watching your primary character kind of do this and so i literally had to sit through 10 minutes of 
nothing. I, I had to wait there. there was, and there's no way to get past it. You cannot skip this. You have to sit through however long you waited uh, to do this. So at first I thought the game... It's hilarious you said that because I did the exact same thing. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> I thought the game was broken. I thought, what's go- I had no idea what was going on because the game doesn't warn you that that's what you're doing, that you're having to wait through it. So it looks like the game just froze. And, and I, I had no idea what was going on. It was insane. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the, it, I wondered because it, it sort of clicked for me when I, when I was going through that second playthrough because I had actually waited so long on the original playthrough that it, it brought me back to it. I, was, I didn't get up and leave, but I, was, I have two TVs next to each other, and I was playing on uh, a Sunday or a Saturday, and I was watching football on the other TV. And so it got to that moment, and I turned and I started looking at the football game next to it, and I didn't snap back until the the character that you play through in playthrough two or playthrough B ends up saying, "I'm sorry, I've reached my recording limit. I, I'm going to have to proceed and shut you off, or whatever it is that he says." And and then I noticed up in the corner that it had a little recording sign and so i didn't really know what was going on there until i got to the next playthrough and thought oh god that was the first thing that popped into my head is i'm gonna have to sit here and wait for 10 minutes (laughs) (laughs) while past me watches football it's such a risky thing that the developer did and, and they took a lot of risks and that's one of them where idiots like us could potentially suffer the negative consequences of those risks but even the idea that the game um all but says that it doesn't directly say there is a snippet from I think it's a message from the developer that happens at the end of the the credits through after playthrough a there's a there's a comment that says something about hey continue the playthrough um, we designed this game to be played multiple times whatever yada yada but it doesn't really throw that at your face and say hey you really need to do this because it is actually part of the game and that's a huge risk the developer took I mean if this weren't the world of the internet where news of this sort of fourth wall breaking or this sort of risky behavior as a spread like wildfire. Um, this could have been seriously a thing where the developer spent two thirds, two thirds of their budget on two thirds of a game that no one ever saw. Um, that's a real possibility. It could have happened that way, but it didn't. And I think it was, maybe it was in the cartridge club, uh, podcast. Um, uh, P one, I think it was mentioned that this was a, this game actually saved platinum essentially from bankruptcy or from being sold or something like that. It saved the company, which is amazing. And I'm hoping it has a, a, I'm hoping that platinum really owns this, uh, franchise and can make it, you know, even greater and better in the future. But at the same time, I do kind of hope it remains this, this single perfect nugget of gaming experience. Absolutely. It was, it was interesting because the, the game that I had played directly prior to Nier Automata was uh, Transformers Devastation, which ironically is also another plat- Platinum game. And it's sort of a three-dimensional beat-em-up, but I didn't make the connection until probably a couple of hours into playing Nier, and I thought, God, the, the gameplay really is reminiscent of something, and I can't put my finger on it. And then another hour or so went by, and I thought, oh, my God, it, it's really the, it controls almost exactly like Transformers, which I thought was kind of weird, because the, the, as far as games are, games go, game style, game theme, game, uh, even really the gameplay itself, it, 
it's not the same, but yet there's still these little hearkenings in it that I think, oh yeah, it's you, this is done the same way as it was done in Transformers Devastation. <laughs> That's incredible. That's incredible. And uh, I will say, hey, so... I kind of mentioned uh, Cartridge Club a little bit, um, but another podcast uh, that's part of the the Cartridge Club sort of community is Polykill. Um, I listened to their podcast uh, recently. I believe it was it might it was probably their most recent episode. I'm, I'm assuming, um, and I can't remember if it was Trav or if it was Jake mentioned that you know they played near Automata. They 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 he enjoyed it, uh, but he didn't quite get it, and he did. And one of the one of the he- sticking points that he mentioned that I wanted to address here because I'm too much of a coward to address it directly to his face. So if he happens to be listening, this is me um, calling you a dummy uh, through the protected uh, frame of of not only physical distance but also temporal distance because you probably won't hear this until long after I've said it. And that is, you can you you can fast travel. Uh, in this game, essentially, there is there comes a point in the game where you get, are given the ability to transport from location to location. One of the big sticking points that he had mentioned was that he was tired of running from place to place. And I'm hoping that he knew that you could transport and that you didn't have to run everywhere. That's my, that's my hope, because if he didn't know that, then, yeah, I could absolutely see how frustrating an experience this game could have been. It was Travis that mentioned this on, on Polykill. Um, I actually just listened to that. Uh, this week so it must have been their most recent episode um the fast travel doesn't unlock until a couple of hours in Mm -hmm. um initially all you can do is fast travel from sort of the, the the home spaceship hub to the main camp um so I, I did I did think that a little bit. I thought the same along the same lines as Travis when I was initially playing it, thinking, God, I wish I would unlock fast travel already because I'm also somebody who goes and does a bunch of side quests and clears out an entire area before I go and proceed on through the main storyline. So it was probably exacerbated for me because I was going around running and collecting things and doing side quests before I ever got to the part in the main story where fast travel was enabled one of the other comments that travis made though that i I, that really resonated with me and i sort of alluded to this earlier was playthrough b i thought they did a disservice by being so overlapping for a relatively long period of time in the the opening scenes um, because you really are playing, you play through the, the entire prologue, um, and really the most of the initial, uh, the initial map area, you're repeating the stuff that you already did in playthrough a, and I could see, and this is where, where Travis said, he basically just quit at that point and never proceeded further. And it's a shame because after you get through that is when it diverges and gets, into just being an amazing game. Um, so I feel like if he goes back to it, he he might really enjoy it. I feel like that if the developer would have taken a different tact, if they would have sort of artificially uh, fast-forwarded through uh, playthrough B, it would have lost almost some of that, that fourth-wall magic that it has. I mean, er- earlier when I was talking about the literal you having to wait while uh, your first recorded session kind of plays through... Um, that wouldn't necessarily have been possible, or if that same mechanic had been introduced at a different time throughout some point later on in the game, the my question would have been, okay, that happened later in the game, but why couldn't that have also happened at the beginning? And so I feel like the developer almost had to do that. If they were going to really st- stay true to the idea of this being a, a fourth wall breaking, really sort of uh, 
uh, clever experience. And I'm not saying clever is always good. It's bad if you're clever for the sake of being clever. But in this case, it was a clever experience that I think really worked really well. And I think uh, I think I was so on board with the game after playing through playthrough A, and I sort of got the humor of the game that during that playthrough, that that initial stages of playthrough B. I just had this inkling. I had this feeling that, nah, they're, they're doing something with this. It's actually something. And when that light bulb hit me that, you know, you have to sit through a few of the physical, the actual recorded uh, memories, so to speak, of playthrough A, it kind of hit me. And I, and I was, I was, I guess maybe I was more forgiving than, than some players would be. But um, part of me feels that maybe Trav felt that way because he wasn't so taken with the first playthrough. I feel like if he was really taken with that first playthrough, he would have been more than willing to probably push through some of that boring stuff. So I can understand why he would have he would have given up after that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's that's a shame because it it you you run that risk, but it, for for players who power through that, it's it it does turn into a really fantastic game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I went back and played it. Uh, so during the last recording, uh, the last podcast recording, I had played up through ending D and I didn't actually proceed and get and complete ending E. It wasn't until after that podcast and after talking about how much I love this game that people told me, I think it was in my, 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 uh, near automata, uh, review video, uh, that I did on my channel. Uh, I, I mentioned you know, how much I love it. I got a couple comments and, and got a couple comments to that video saying, Hey, you've played through ending E, right? Ending E, right? Cause apparently ending E is so incredible that, it would be. It, it was weird that it was absent from my review. It's one of those endings. It's one of those features in a game that every review would talk about it, uh, except unless they wanted to spoil the game. But but I think they could navigate that uh, cleverly. But I didn't even mention it, and so people rightly realized, hey, you must not have played that ending. I didn't. They told me about it, um, and then you Scott prodded me and said, you know what, you really need to jump back into this game and do it. So I put down the Last Guardian, which is a game that I was playing. Uh, it, it was my next in line. I was playing that, really enjoying that. By the way, as a side note. Went back and, and finished ending E, and, and I was very, very happy that I did. So for what it's worth, Scott, thank you for prodding me to finish uh, what I had already called was my favorite game of all time uh, this year, I guess, not all time, which already seems, I guess, uh, illogical for me not to finish a game that I had told someone was my favorite. This year, so anyway. <laughs> well, and in, so you went back and, and you posted a sort of a follow-up video on your YouTube channel talking about your going back and playing through ending E or maybe this was your, I think actually I think it was a video talking about how you hadn't played it yet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was sort of my fear of jumping back into it. Yeah. And it was interesting because in the video, and this is sort of why I prodded you to, to go back and and experience the ending was in the video you, you refer and I only bring this up because you've already put it out there Mm -hmm. um, about just a struggle with depression and, and having, you know, noticing trigger triggers and and things that um you deal with and i have got quite a few friends who are in the same boat um and a i think it's awesome that you you know bring it up and talk about it and and put it out there because i think it's 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 something that a lot of people are afraid of talking about um so mad props there and second i think the ending e has some interesting themes um, that it touches on that I think speak to um, the a depression mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe did did you get any of that while you were playing through ending E? Um, I I didn't only because I think I was I was so frustrated with. Uh, I mean I I got the same kind of sort of uh, 
existence means, you know, the sort of grandiose large themes of like existence sort of being futile and you're just an android and you're meant to serve no purpose other than to fulfill a fake purpose is kind of the only reason you exist in this game, in this uh, game near Automata. So I got that, but I think I was so frustrated with trying to beat the Square Enix logo uh, <laughs> that I, I, which is really t- something I never thought I would say. But God, that that was the that was one of the hardest bosses in the game was was the Square Enix text. Yeah. It, so for for those who haven't looked into this and all, this isn't really a spoiler. But in order to trigger ending E after you've played through the first four playthroughs, the ending E is triggered by going through the end credits after that final playthrough. And the credits turn into a sort of arcade-style retro 360-degree shooter. And you, in order to get to ending E, you have to make it through the entire credits, and it goes faster and faster and faster, and they swirl around and they're shooting at you, but you have to go through and, and live through the entire credit roll before you can get to ending E. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it, and it's not, it's not an easy fight, um, but, uh, but I made it through. <laughs> so what uh you mentioned you've been playing uh the last guardian mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. last guardian um i'm still in the middle of that having a lot of fun with it i, I never played it when it, was, when it was originally released i know the stories of how buggy it was or or how horrible the camera angles are um and yes the camera angles are pretty bad um i don't notice any bugs yet uh, so, but it's still, I'm having so much fun with it. I was a huge Ico fan. Um, I still, still hadn't played Shadow of the Colossus, uh, but I do plan on playing that remaster when it comes out. So, uh, this type of game really is up my alley, uh, a low entry point kind of game. Um, something that's just sort of, uh, you know, casual, um, easy, but beautiful to look at with sort of a, an implied story rather than an overt one. I just like that whole type of thing. So, playing The Last Guardian. Um, then I played uh, Bald Boy on the Switch, which I know I'm not supposed to buy any new games, but this one was only a few dollars, and I wanted to try it out because it also seemed up my alley. I have and never it's sort even of a, heard of it. It's it's a game worth hearing about because it is a game that's shocking that it's on a Nintendo console. So it is, if you can... Well, I guess I shouldn't say that so much because Binding of Isaac is also on a Nintendo console, and that's a game I never would have thought would be on a, on a Nintendo console because it is—it's gross, it's awful, it speaks with really dark, it speaks to really dark themes. Um, but Bull Boy is almost like a point-and-click version of Binding of Isaac. I mean, it's at one point you're fighting a giant diarrhea monster. Um, you there's there's you're you're swimming around in your grandfather's guts, and you're swimming through his colon, and and it's very cartoony. It's it's cartoony in a very sort of adult swim, but I feel bad for watching it. Like it, it elicits <laughs> emotions uh, in in the way that when you learn sort of uh, Edward Munson, I think is his name, the guy who created a uh, 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 Meat Boy, Meat Boy, and oh, yeah. uh, and Binding of Isaac. Um, when you learn of his childhood and how his childhood was actually sort of the what what forms the Binding of Isaac and you learn that he had it, had it pretty rough and so then when you play Binding of Isaac you're like wow this really comes from a place of of pain I play Bulb Boy and I feel like it must have come from a similar place of pain and it makes me never want to ever meet the developers who made this game it's so <laughs> just gross and and weird and creepy um but I think the Switch version has a a game-breaking bug of sorts I'm on the very last boss it's only a couple hour long game not a huge time investment very very easy um but there's a there's a final boss that requires you, requires you to swim at a certain speed in order to avoid being inhaled by this boss. 
it is impossible on the switch to actually swim faster than you being inhaled. Um, it just, it's just impossible. And I went online to try to find forums about this, to try to find help. I haven't found any help at all about it. In fact, and on the only playthroughs I can find to sort of hopefully get help that way are, uh, PC version playthroughs or phone, uh, Android iPhone version playthroughs. So I can't find any information out there. So on the crazy off chance that someone listening knows what I was doing wrong, please, please let me know. You can t- tweet me at Caleb J. Ross. You can tweet us at MOU podcast. Just, I don't know, but it's a fun game up until that point. <laughs> <laughs> Frustrating. Wow. Yeah. Super. And then the last thing I played was I did after the Nintendo direct, which actually will probably jump in here pretty soon after the Nintendo direct, uh, 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 video um i did download the octopath traveler demo that game looked really 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 cool on the uh, on that so maybe as we get to talking about uh that nintendo direct uh video i will kind of bring that up definitely so, that's um, that's one of the one of the games from the video that i'm most excited about as well mm-hmm. so what else uh, have you played or picked up or anything so the other thing that after I finished Nier Automata, the, I jumped into one of, I think it was last month's PlayStation Plus titles, uh, Sundered, which is mm-hmm. sort of a uh, procedurally generated dungeon diver platformer. Um, not really a Metroidvania, but kind of, I guess. Um, and I'm not sure that I en- I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm just sort of playing it because it's there. Um, and I find it's easy to play and just mindlessly kill things as I watch, you know, as I watch baseball or something else on the other TV. Um, yeah, I'm almost done with it. Uh, I'd say I've probably, I'm, I've probably put 10 to 15 hours into it or so. Um, and I think I'm, I'm probably 75 to 80% through it, um, now you'd mentioned I think getting this from Limited Run Games, um, but I don't recall if you in- played it and enjoyed it. Well, I got it from I got Jotun, which was the the game that this company made before Sundered. I don't think Sundered is on Limited Run, is it? And if it is, then I must have missed it, um, which I hope I didn't. Um, although it, unless it was on Vita, I don't have a Vita, so I only do the PS4. So that's probably. Um, but I, I had not played it. No, um, I had heard very mixed reactions. Um, I had heard it's random generation is sort of a, a problem with a game because the type of game that it is, is one that encourages exploration. It's sort of a Metroidvania, but mixed with roguelike elements, which seems sort of almost counterintuitive to me. Um, but I have not played it. I played Jotun. I, I had high hopes for Jotun, as I mentioned in the previous podcast, I believe, uh, or, uh, yeah, I think I did. But it turned out to be terrible. So, like, what do you? Obviously, you're playing Sundered. You're 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 15 hours into it. You it must be good. Is is what I'm hearing about it incorrect, or what do you think? You know, I I don't really have an issue with the procedural generation and the exploration because it sort of lets you explore all anew again. Um, so I actually kind of like that aspect of it. Uh, the it's unique because it doesn't generate the whole map. There's you start out in this central hub uh, of essentially a, a dungeon, and you have three main directions that you can go, and each one of these directions leads you to a unique map. And then each one of these unique maps has, um, I think, three 
sort of sub bosses and then a main a main boss to go through and and first you have to find them and then obviously defeat them before and then each one of the sub bosses drops a, a shard fragment and then three shard fragments make a shard which you can turn into a, a special ability and then the main boss drops a full shard um, and the the maps are only regenerated whenever you die so you don't really get you don't really have a loss of exploration until you die and then if you die then the map only sort of partially regenerates there are you you can think of the map as a a series of um you know, square or rectangular giant areas and then within that each square or rectangular area there's probably a dozen of which make up the each of the three different map directions dungeons and then within each one of those dozen squares or rectangles are individual little rooms and pathways and and things and it's those individual rooms and pathways that gets regenerated not the overall sort of map borders um so you still sort of have a a general idea of where you're going and where the the boss rooms are and where the the hidden areas are you just don't know exactly the path um you know the direction you don't know the path i guess is the Mm. the best way to say it Hmm. but the combat is kind of fun it's just it's sort of button mashy um i would say it's uh a little bit simplistic i think the 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 skill tree is probably its weakest point um, you really just put power up points into like your hit points and your shield points and your melee damage and and range damage. So it's pretty simplistic in terms of gameplay. Um, but overall, it's a it's a pretty game. I like the artwork in it and I like the uh, the dungeon, the differentiation in the dungeons. It's not just your typical dark dungeon diver. It's more of sort of a fantastical, um, colorful dungeon. Hmm. But I guess I would I would recommend giving it a try, especially if you have if you downloaded or if any of the listeners have downloaded on PlayStation Plus and haven't haven't played it. It's a quick playthrough. Um, I'm spending more time with it than I really needed to, just because I've been playing it as sort of background activity. Um, but <laughs> but I've enjoyed it. Um, but I'll probably be done with it here relatively soon, so that I can dive into a couple of the games that I recently picked up. Primarily of which would be uh, Destiny Two and uh yeast eight mm, i've not played any of the ease games and uh i've heard nothing but praise it's yeah i mean they're a long long standing uh jrpg turn-based um you know classic jrpg series going all the way back to uh, the the original nintendo one of my favorite uh rpg jrpg series and jrpgs are already one of my favorite genres in general hmm I should also say uh, I'm doing some research here, and it looks like Sundered is uh, part of the Limited Run Games uh, catalog, but it looks like it hasn't been opened up for uh, for um, uh, it hasn't been opened up for order yet. So I, it, it must just haven't been. It's not coming out yet. Oh, okay. Uh, it looks like it's part of an upcoming release. So. I was going to say, I thought I'd get all of the uh, PlayStation 4 ones, and this looks like PlayStation 4 and possibly Vita as well. So, um, But anyone listening, do not order it because I'm getting tired of almost missing these buys. <laughs> 
It'll be interesting to see. They so they have they have quite a few games that are announced but not yet um, not yet available for order. Um, going all the way back to things that were announced very very early in here in 2017. So I'm wondering kind of what some of the holdup is on on a lot of it. If it's I know some of the games they're waiting for patches to be finalized so that they mm-hmm. can have you know sort of the the complete uh, verified version on the cart so that it's a, a true archival physical media version of the game yeah and i love them for that too I, i'm totally fine with waiting uh especially for games that i'm not eagerly looking forward to but games that i know will be kind of passively fun um so i'm i'm totally on board with that idea so absolutely well, speaking of uh, speaking of games that I'm passively looking forward to, but not super eager about, uh, what do you say we j- dive into this Nintendo Direct thing that happened yesterday? Let's do it. So it was oh, um, basically an hour long video stream uh, where Nintendo just threw a bunch of upcoming goodness at us. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I, I you know, and and this is. I'll, I'll I'll sort of lay my cards on the table here. So I'm learning more and more that uh, the Switch, it, it's full of games that look really cool, but I will probably never play. And and I hate saying that because I enjoy what I have played on the Switch so far, but it's few and far between the games that I'm like truly looking forward to. Like I'm really looking forward to Mario Odyssey. I would like to play Mario plus Rabbids. I don't know if I ever will. Um, I am looking forward to Skyrim, but it's on every other system. And there's a lot of digital games right now that look interesting and and sort of I wouldn't mind playing them. But there's none that, um, and people, listeners are going to hate me for saying this, but there's just none that I personally am like, I have to have this game. I can't wait other than Mario Odyssey. That's really about the only one. And so it could be because I missed uh, a few generations of Nintendo consoles. I haven't had a Nintendo console other than the Switch since the GameCube. So I, and I haven't played a Wii or Wii, I've like literally never played a Wii or a Wii U. Like that's how crazy it is. And I've literally never played a DS or a 3DS, never even held one, I don't think. So as much as I love video games, there was just a big blackout period of my life where I didn't, I just wasn't part of the video game culture. And so maybe that's why some of these just don't resonate with me. Like I'm like Kirby games, cool, but you know, I haven't played them since the Game Boy. Um, I don't know. I'm just not as excited as I as I really really want to be. But I am very excited for people who are excited. If that makes any sense. Yeah. No. I I tend to agree. I mean, I know a lot of the Cartridge Club folks are stoked about um, you know a lot of the more multiplayer style games for the Switch, and they've been playing a lot of uh, playing a lot of Arms, playing a lot of Splatoon, uh, and that's just not the type of game that I tend to enjoy. Um, so I'm, I'm more of a, I guess, I guess I'm an antisocial gamer, <laughs> which is somewhat ironic for somebody who used to run a multiplayer, you know, gaming store. And to such a degree that even when you're playing by yourself, you're still paying attention to other things like football games. So you're, you're even, you're even more antisocial than just being by yourself. <laughs> Cause I'm ignoring not the game even too. be by yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I think there there were there were a handful of things that excited me, but then a lot of the things that I think most people will get excited about that were announced at the Nintendo Direct event are things that like Kirby Star Allies, um, uh, even really Mario Odyssey. I'm just sort of meh. I guess it's I guess I'll play it at some point, but um, 
I was more excited by things, uh, things like Project Octopath that you've already mentioned, um, the Xenoblade Chronicles Two, mm-hmm. um, Morphe's Law sort of looked interesting, but it looks sort, it looks more like the like an Arms style or you know, kind of a, a, a hero based combat. So that probably won't be up my alley. Um, Arena of Valor looks kind of interesting. I do, I do enjoy the the MOBA type games like uh, uh, Dota, Dota Two, League of Legends, that kind of thing. That's not to say I'm any good at them whatsoever. I'm horrible <laughs> at them, but I do. I think it comes from my love of just clicking on things randomly. <laughs> ha- uh, people who sell, uh, people who distribute spam on computers and and malware really love you. <laughs> So does Amazon. You're their audience. So does Amazon because I always click yeah. that one buy order button or one click order button. Oh man, I'm so scared of that button because I'm thinking, yeah, I want to one click order this, but I'm thinking, what if in five minutes I find something else I want to buy? And I know they package them, but I'm still so paranoid. I'm like, I, in my mind, Amazon is so fast that as soon as I click the button, it's already in a box and there's no going back. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you actually on the one click order uh, and this will I hope this doesn't descend you into one click ordering uh, addiction. You actually have 30 minutes to verify and cancel your order before they actually process it. But the one click button does put you into the order queue. So like if something if it's something that's you know, going to sell out immediately, like say uh, when the Nintendo Switch first launched and they popped up on Amazon, if you click the one click order button, it your your order is in line you're guaranteed if it was in stock when you click that button you're going to get it but you have 30 minutes to before your order is actually processed that is really good to know i had no idea yeah so it's if you're if you're sort of doing the f5 game and waiting for amazon to to post something uh you post something that may sell out momentarily then you one click order is your friend i also use it a lot for Amazon warehouse deals items where Amazon posts things that are either traded into them or things that were warehouse dinged or returns. Uh, It's basically Amazon's used marketplace that Amazon runs. If something pops up there, like sometimes they'll have complete inbox Nintendo 64 or Super Nintendo or NES games that pop up, and I'll one-click order those as well. That's pretty cool. Look at you. You are a legitimate collector, despite what you're thousands and thousands of games uh may already imply (laughs) yeah you know how to do it yeah the uh secrets of a misspent youth (laughs) i can't wait for your memoir sir uh what what about uh so so the nintendo direct i mean for those of you who are listening to this and for some reason didn't experience it i mean you they talked about skyrim which we all knew that came through although i learned uh through this this particular skyrim uh, sort of uh news is that it sounded like to me there was still a chance to get the link hylian shield and the outfit and the master sword even if you don't have the amiibo like there is a chance to actually find it out there in the wild oh really i may have missed yeah that's what it sounded like to me so um go back and definitely rewatch it and see if if maybe i just read into that but if felt like using the amiibo was sort of the guaranteed drop here it is it's right in front of you but you can still actually find it out there so i don't know we'll see if that's actually the case yeah Um, that'd be awesome resident evil revelations one and two on on a single cartridge or a single uh single uh card sounds pretty great i haven't played either of those games so i'd be interested in that doom was a, a huge surprise to me that they were putting doom on the switch and the footage they showed on on tv I'm assuming that's footage from the Switch, and it looked amazing. I mean, it, it looked so, so, so much better than I thought the Switch could handle. 
Um, yeah, I was stunned. Looks amazing anyway. So I'm, if I hadn't already played, I, I this may even be something that I may even buy the Switch version just so I can have it because Doom was, I think, my favorite game of 2016. Um, that's when it came out, right? Yeah, 2016. Uh, I absolutely loved it. So so I may end up buying that one. Xenoblade Blade Chronicles 2. I have not played the first one, but that game still looked amazing. Um, Morphe's Law, which you mentioned, which does feel a little gimmicky, gimmicky but uh, I think it could potentially be interesting. If they had a single-player campaign, although I guess that would be impossible considering the very gimmick that it's about, um, would be kind of cool. Rocket League, obviously, Lost Fear, you mentioned Wolfenstein 2, which I thought was an incredibly awesome reveal. Um, it would be nice if it was coming out concurrently with the rest of the consoles rather than in 2018, but yeah, what are you going to do? Um, and then... Project Octopath. I want to touch on that real quick here, and I know then we probably want to move on to um, a more headier topic, possibly. But so I, I played the demo. I'm not going to spoil or ruin anything for anyone out there who hasn't played the demo. Definitely download it if you felt the the visuals of the game looked really cool. Um, I think it's been way too long since I've played a heavy text or a text heavy RPG. Um, I have played RPGs, I, but they've never been huge, these these massive text uh, stories and things like that. And this game had a lot of text, and that's that's my one knock on it so far. Um, I, don't again, don't want to put you in a frame of mind to not enjoy that, but it just had more than I was willing to read. Um, I tried at the beginning, and I just couldn't. So other than that, I, I, was, I was definitely impressed by the visuals, um, but, you know, I, if, if you can get past how much text is going on there, then maybe it's, it's, it's a much better experience. I wonder if, you know, it is very early in the, in the demo or in the development process for it, they, and they hinted at this in the, in the Nintendo Direct video that part of what they're looking for out of people playing the demo is some feedback so that they can tailor the storyline and, and do some changing up, and I wonder if, if a lot of that text heaviness will get voiceovered once the the story is far enough along or the development is far enough along that it's more complete and they don't have to just go back and redo all of the voiceover work. Oh, interestingly enough, there is voiceover already. <laughs> um, and it's and it's and everything is voiced over and I had to actually turn the voices off cuz they were just super annoying. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So I think I think the text stuff is probably more uh, a relic, not a relic, but it's more of uh, an element of this particular genre, because I know text-heavy RPGs are definitely a genre, and that's a genre people enjoy. So I think you have to be a fan of that in order to really enjoy it. I personally would just like to not have the text there, but yeah, that's me. The guy who writes books says, I don't want text. (laughs) (laughs) It's like people who sit at the computer all day. The last thing I want to do is game on a computer when I get home. I want to sit in my recliner and kick back and crack open a nice cold soda pop. And, uh, you know, enjoy, enjoy my gaming and comfort. Soda and pop. Yeah. Doing, doing both. Not so as not to alienate anyone. Exactly. Nice. Yep. Get, get all of my bases covered. <laughs> so what, what were some of your takeaways from the, uh, from the direct? So I think, I think there were several, um, initially uh, it showed that they're really, um, kind of putting their mouth money where their mouth was initially when they were launching the switch and announcing the switch, they said, Hey, this isn't going to be the Wii U all over again. We're actually going to have third party support. And, and they put up the big screen that showed all of the different developer names and publisher names. And people were sort of, um, 
hesitant to believe it. They thought, well, it was just said developers that or third parties that are supporting the Switch, so nobody really knew what that meant. But if you look down the list here of the games, um, you have a lot of the heavy-hitting publishing studios represented. You've got Square Enix, obviously, on multiple fronts with Dragon Quest Builders, Xenoblade Chronicles. Um, I think Xenoblade Chronicles is... Or no, maybe that's... Uh, I think that's Monolith, uh, which is a Nintendo studio. So um, Dragon Quest Builders, Lost Sphere was another Square Enix. Um, You had Capcom, you had Bethesda, you had EA, you had 2K. Obviously, Ubisoft has already been a a big supporter with Mario and Rabbids. So I think think that's a good sign that this isn't doomed for uh, the Wii U's fate in terms of third-party support. But... One thing that I was a little bit worried about, and this may just be the fact that it's so early and and developers and publishers didn't want to go all in on support of the Switch, given the Wii U's um, fate, is that most of the games that are third-party titles are are ports of previously released games for other systems. Uh, As you mentioned, Doom, Resident Evil Revelations, Skyrim, Rocket League, Wolfenstein 2, Dragon Quest Builders, uh, just a lot of stuff that is a lot of us have already seen and done. Um, And I don't know, I'm sure for a large part of a large portion of the Switch's installed user base, the portability aspect is enough to get them to say, oh, I really want the Switch version of Doom or Skyrim or Resident Evil. Well, Resident Evil Revelations is already on portable systems. Uh, but this is going to be the first time a lot of these titles have are going to be available in portable mode. Now, I do virtually zero portable gaming. So the Switch to me is basically a home console. It sits in its cradle, and I've taken it out twice, one of which was to go and show a buddy at work who wanted to check out the switch. Um, and the other was when I flew home to, to visit family. So, um, to me, it's basically, a, a, a standard console. So I don't know that there's enough to get me to double dip and, and check out these other games. And I'm hoping that the Switch's portable user base is big enough to get repeat third party support. Right. You know, I thought of something when you were mentioning uh, having a portable version of a game that that um, has been out for a while. Tell me, you're you're a sound uh, you're a sound businessman. Tell me the business case for not doing this. So, why couldn't you know if 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 uh, if, if the major players in in the video game world and the console world, uh, we'll talk about Sony and Nintendo as an example here. Would there would there ever be a time you think if if they're not going to necessarily fully embrace cross play or anything like that, um, would there be an opportunity you think for having some sort of save some sort of shared save cloud system so that I could buy two copies of uh, I could buy a copy of Doom on my my PS4 I could buy a copy of Doom on my Switch and use the same save file stored in the cloud between both or something like that so that. Um, both both console man- manufacturers are winning by having the game on both systems, um, and the only reason someone would have them on both systems is if they really did want to actually have it both portable and have their you know PS4 version at home with their PS4 controller or something like that. I mean, does I guess the the Switch having docking capability kind of make that um, you know ridiculous anyway? I guess now that I'm saying it out loud, that's probably exactly what it is. There'd be no reason for the Nintendo Switch to 
to allow that sort of cross uh, functionality because they they already are a home console as well. So yeah, and I I think just in terms of of business strategy, it would be a poor move for Microsoft, Sony, and Nintendo to to go that route. Publishers would obviously love it because they're sort of platform agnostic to a sense, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and really it goes. For the the publishers, it's beneficial to them to be able to have um, sort of free flow back and forth between platforms, so that you can they would have leverage to push back against you know, um, Sony's development costs or, or production costs when they're creating uh, Sony discs or Vita cartridges or Nintendo's you know licensing on the Switch cartridges and so forth. But the the bigger drawback for Nintendo, Sony, and Microsoft and your hardware developers is that it having saves locked to your specific platform and experiences locked to your specific platform, whether it's your Xbox Live friends list or your saved games or your digital download uh, library, is that it increases the switching costs to the end user. And you see the mm-hmm. same sort of behavior with Apple's iTunes and Google's uh, Google Play Store and even Samsung trying to do their own, um, you know, their own store within the Android ecosystem. Uh, it's all about trying to maintain the customers that have already bought into your platform. Uh, it's much easier to keep customers that you already have than to, and much easier and cheaper to keep customers that you already have than to go out and acquire new ones. So by and large, once you have a customer into your system, um, you want to do everything you can to keep them there and keep them within your ecosystem. So anything that you would do to lower the switching cost, and I don't just mean cost in a monetary sense, but cost as in anything that's a hurdle or an impediment to me switching. Um, I don't. I'm an iPhone user, and I don't. I don't particularly care for Android, but I did go and try Android once, and one of the biggest pains was, well, I've already bought this big library of apps, and it's not even really that big of a library because I don't typically buy apps. I'll try a bunch of you know free stuff and whatnot, and I don't do a lot of gaming on the phone anyway. Um, but I do have a core suite of apps that I use, and going from one platform to another, now I've got to go and I've got to download all those apps, buy the apps that I've already purchased on a different platform, set them up, configure them, and so forth, whereas if I were to just go to the next iteration of the iPhone, it just loads my backup and boom, I'm right in there. They're very, very attentive to make that as seamless as possible process while making the switching process a pain in the ass. Yeah, that's all logical, you jerk. (laughs) (laughs) God, forget I ever had any ideas ever in my life. Ugh. Speaking of the business strategy aspect, one thing that I did another takeaway to the uh, Nintendo Direct seminar or seminar video what, that I thought was sort of a salient point that you really touched on earlier in the in your discussion of um, uh, Bulb Boy and uh, Binding of Isaac is the changing evolution of what a Nintendo platform is and what games are on it. You know, you think back to the Super Nintendo and Mortal Kombat didn't have any blood and uh, Zombies Ate My Neighbors had this, you know, goo slime stuff instead of the blood that was on the su- on the Sega Genesis version. It was very much the family-friendly, uh, gore-free, uh, violence-toned-down uh 
platform for the whole household. And now I look at this uh, list of games that the Nintendo Direct announced, and I'd say a third of them are games that will be rated M. Skyrim will mm-hmm. be rated M. Resident Evil Revelations will be rated M. Doom will be rated M. Um, Wolfenstein 2 will be rated M. You know, and that, that's just off the top of my head. Um, so I think it's it's telling that Nintendo is sort of is trying to broaden their base. You can just look at even the themes of all of the games. You've got uh, your Western RPG and Skyrim. You've got your survival horror and Resident Evil and and Doom. You've got first person shooter and and a, a kind of a, a first person action game in Wolfenstein. You've got your JRPGs. You've got your platformers in Mario. You've got multiplayer and racing and Rocket League. You've got the MOBAs. You've got the hero based combat. It really sort of checks the box for everyone, and I don't know that that was the case for the Wii. Um, The Wii had a typical sort of two-tiered game library. It had the Nintendo AAA platform uh, characters, you know, their their Marios, their uh, Mario Karts, the Zelda... Anything that wasn't sort of that um, flagship Nintendo brand was more or less shovelware. It was uh, Jeopardies and Wheel of Fortunes and Just Dance and all of the crappy Toys to Life games where, you know, Skylanders and things like that, Lego Dimensions and whatnot. So I think this is really a signal by Nintendo that says, hey, we realize what happened with the, with the Wii U, um, and we're going to try and, and diversify our library portfolio. And I think one of the big, one of the important aspects from Nintendo Direct that you'll see that sort of furthers this perspective was that they were very, um, they didn't spend a lot of time on it, but they were very careful to also announce that the Nintendo Switch is going to have sports titles. You know, it's got, they announced uh, NBA 2K18, they announced FIFA 18, and they announced uh, WWE 2K18. And while sports announcements uh, aren't sexy, especially for the type of gamers that are typically going to watch uh, Nintendo Direct type uh, type announcement you know your your nintendo fanboys aren't going to give a lick about sports games for the most part obviously there are uh there are exceptions but in order for a platform to gain mainstream sales traction it needs to have a steady supply of sports titles now if you look at just the sales figures for the playstation 4 PlayStation 4 has sold roughly 62 million consoles worldwide and if you looking if you look at the top 50 highest selling games in the US 11 of those are sports titles and if you look at Europe 3 of the top 5 selling games for the PlayStation are sports titles so in order to really get that mainstream traction, you've got to have those sports titles. You've got to have things like Call of Duty. I know as as a lot of gamers tend to poo-poo those as they're just churned out every year. It's the, you know, Call of Duty 74. It's Madden, <laughs> you know, the 78th iteration of Madden. But they are crucial. Those games are crucial to the success of a, of a hardware, uh, a game hardware. Mm-hmm. I think the the M rated um, the M rated side of it too is maybe it may not be so much Nintendo broadening its audience at least not not consciously but the fact that Nintendo is growing with its audience you know when when people um, our age were growing up there was Nintendo we were kids 
video games were trying to separate themselves from toys. And as we've gotten older and we've gotten more mature, we've now, we are now the audience who can handle these mature games. So Nintendo, which was our thing we grew up on, it's our nostalgic referent in a lot of ways, is now saying, well, our audience is now mature, so of course we have to give them mature games. And so by proxy of offering mature games, you're now going to be offering a larger swath of different types of games. You can't have necessarily have a bloody violent Mario game, but you can have a bloody violent Doom game. And I think part of it too might also be that these games, it's it's not a, it's not a direct one-to-one correlation, but generally speaking, those games that are more violent um, are also the games that are more graphically intense and graphically taxing. And one of the big uh, one of the big issues that people have had with the Switch is that they feel it, fe- fear that it's not very, it's not going to be capable of handling um, huge graphics and huge gra- uh, graphically intense games. And so, by releasing these graphically intense games, Switch is able to say, Nintendo is able to say, yeah, we can't handle those things. So that's no longer necessarily an issue. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of a lot of aspects to it. One thing, one place where I will definitely agree with you is the Nintendo crowds have gotten older. I don't know that I've gotten any more mature. Ah, <laughs> uh, you farty pants. <laughs> you know someone else who's not very mature, Scott, and that's PewDiePie or I'm not going to say it. Oh, PewDiePie. Boy. No, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. So, uh he has made the news again recently for using a racial slur in one of his live stream videos. Um and this is the second or third time or so that he's done that. For anyone for some reason not familiar with PewDiePie, he's the um the the YouTuber on the internet with the highest subscriber count, uh 57 million last I checked. He is primarily a video game YouTuber, so it's a he's a good icon for the gravitas that video game culture can have in a world. Um so I guess if we look at anything in a, from a bright perspective, that could potentially be it. Uh, but of course, he is coming under fire for these racial racial slurs, and from me personally, under fire, I think reasonably so. Um, so I wanted to mention it. I think uh, not so much to to argue the merits of whether or not he was right in saying what he said, or or trying to argue the nuances or whatever. Maybe I'll do that for some sort of hey future Caleb video later on down the line or something. But I, I bring it up specifically, and I know you have some other items that we can talk about. But I bring it up specifically because I think it is a reminder that video game culture ha- that there are these 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 true celebrities uh that are closely tied to video game culture celebrities that really transcend video game culture in a lot of ways and they have transcended that that culture in such a way and they've amassed such a large audience that they can get in trouble for saying things like like uh the n-word on a live stream and just the fact that video a video game personality can get in trouble for saying that to me is almost a positive thing because it does mean that there's some there's there's some validity to this person this personality in the greater world and and I I like that. You mentioned that he has 57 million subscribers on YouTube. Now, I just want to put that into perspective a little bit. I work in the pay TV industry for my real job. So I tend to think of things in terms of distribution and reach. 57 million subscribers is an absolutely astounding number. Just to put it in perspective, all of the pay TV companies in the United States combined have about 90 million subscribers. That's Comcast, DirecTV, AT&T, Dish, Spectrum, Cox, Cable One, all of them combined. So to think that one guy has as much reach as two-thirds of the entire pay TV industry, it's mind-boggling. And to have that much reach, and, and keep in mind that a large share of his subscribers are younger, Now, to have that much reach, he should expect to be held to a reasonable standard of professionalism. I think Diego, uh, who is on Twitter, a a fellow Cartridge Club member, a Latino lawyer, 
I think it was Diego that mentioned at one point, and it was a really salient comment, that people tend to use the First Amendment freedoms as a crutch to just do and say whatever you want. And while there, there's a, a sea of difference in between being able to do and say whatever you want with uh, dealing with the fallout that comes from it. Now, PewDiePie has already essentially lost his his development studio. He lost his contract with Disney because of doing and saying things just like this in the past. Absolutely, absolutely. People, I think, often will forget that uh, the First Amendment right, again, knowing PewDiePie is not in the U.S., put that aside for a moment, but the First Amendment doesn't guarantee that you will have repercussions, right? It basically says you, the government can't necessarily punish you directly or put you in jail for saying what you want to say. Um, but if you're part of a company, a business, a, a, a company can still fire you for it. You know, you can still get uh, yelled at by your neighbors for saying it. I mean, there are still ramifications. It's just those ramifications aren't corpor- corporal, right? Yep, exactly. Exactly. You have the, the right to, to do, you have the right to say whatever you want. I mean, within the bounds of, of public safety. Um, but it, saying something stupid is not a protected class you know it's not uh it's not your religion it's not your race creed or you know whatever else but i do want to shift gears a bit here and discuss what i think is a grossly underreported legal aspect of this whole pewdiepie thing and that's the copyright strike filed against him and what it could mean for the future of game streaming now for those who haven't heard, Campo Santo, the developer of Firewatch, which PewDiePie was streaming when he made his most recent comment, filed a Digital Millennium copyright takedown notice against PewDiePie, and YouTube has accepted it, meaning that the video was taken down and PewDiePie now has a, a copyright strike on his account. Now, YouTube basically has a three strikes policy, and should he ever end up with three strikes, YouTube will terminate his account and delete all of his content. Now, this is the part that most of the coverage that I've seen has focused on, PewDiePie's potential account deletion. And granted, that's important to PewDiePie and his revenue stream, but frankly, if his YouTube account gets banned, most of his active most of the active members of his 57 million subscribers would probably follow him to whatever platform he migrated to. Um, obviously, that would still suck for him, but it's not something that would be you know, a, a, an end game for PewDiePie. But the bigger story here is what would happen if PewDiePie fought the copyright claim um, in terms of the overall streaming marketplace. Um, and that's something that he and his lawyers have said that they're considering. Now, they claim that his video qualifies for the fair use exemption against copyright claims. And this is basically the um, exemption that all game streamers point to and, and Let's Players point to uh, to claim that they're not violating copyright by streaming games. Now, in layman terms, without getting into too much legalese here, what the fair use exemption says is that if you're using a copyrighted work in a transformative, quote unquote, purpose, uh, like a review or a critique or a news story, something like that, then it can be done without, or even a parody, then it can be done without permission and hence without remuneration for the copyright owner. Now, there's zero argument that a legitimate fair use claim is a defense against a copyright claim. The question is whether or not streaming a game or doing a let's play is actually fair use. 
And I think that should a case ever, a case like this ever actually end up in court, the game streaming community would be sorely disappointed with the outcome. Uh, now, there are multiple well-settled precedents across a wide swath of media and entertainment mediums that I think are likely to apply uh, in this case, and none of them are good for game streamers. Now, you can look at broadcast television, musical performances on the radio or streaming services like Spotify, and even stage performances of plays. All of these are cases that are not fair use and are cases where the copyrighted content has to be paid for and licensed from the uh, copyright holder in order to be retransmitted or publicly performed. If I wanted to go up, let me just do an analogy here. If I wanted to go up and put an over-the-ear antenna uh, outside my window here and tune to the local Fox affiliate and capture this weekend's, uh, one of this weekend's NFL games, and then I turn around and broadcast that over the internet, but I mute the sound and over the top of it I talk instead. I guarantee you I will get sued by the local station, by Fox Networks, and by the NFL for copyright, and I would lose. In a legal context, that's exactly what game streamers and Let's Players are doing. Uh, now, it's a different story from a reviewer where snippets of the game and footage are being used. That's clearly fair use. Broadcasting it wholesale is not fair use in any medium. It's a public performance, uh, and this is me sort of... Uh, Tr uh, obviously you are much much more well equipped to to uh to to talk about this than i am so i may be asking a super dumb question here but is there a difference though even if the you you are adding something to the uh first of all a video game isn't linear right so there is it i would almost think of of a video game as less a music or broadcast uh, where there's a definitive beginning and end in a definitive experience that that is that has been curated you know what's the difference between that and say uh, I, I took a uh, I guess I, I took like a, an action figure or something stupid like that and I brought that and played with that out in the in the yard and I had a whole group of people watching me play with this action figure right I mean that's something that um, that isn't a that I'm 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 basically just just holding it up there and, and showing it and performing it for people, but I'm using assets that maybe I didn't necessarily uh, own or anything like that. I mean, that's probably a terrible example, but no, no, that, that's actually a, a couple of really good points I'd like to discuss there. I'm going to touch on both of them here. The you touching your first point, linearity. Um, now, while a video game may not be linear in the sense that a TV show is linear or a movie is linear. Uh, it is comprised of many different scenes that are more or less linear. And taken on the whole, most games, with very, very rare exceptions, have a story arc. They have a beginning, they have a middle, and they have an end. Um, even the most uh, open-world games have a story that flows through them, or they are a series of vignettes that make up sort of the whole story and the whole experience of the game. Um, you could liken it to an album for music, really, and I know I'm probably showing my age here by even calling it an album, but if I were to set up a, a stream of a band's album online, but instead of putting the songs in the order they appear on the album, I decided to shuffle them into my own order, I'm still violating the copyright for each and every song. It would be the same way uh, I would be violating the, the copyright for a, a publisher by streaming uh, a quest or a quest series or uh, a particular uh, act of a game. 
Now, in your action figure example, it's a little bit different. Now, the action figure is a physical item. It's a, uh, a while it has a copyright in and of itself or intellectual property in and of itself, uh, the action figure likely has copyright aspects on it as well. The name of the character, the logos on it, the look of the toy, um, which you may need to license those components in order to turn it into a character in your film if you were making a film you know, that, that heavily relied on that character. Um, or and you couldn't go make a bunch of copies of that action figure and distribute those because it's the physical good that's actually uh, you know the copyright and the intellectual property pertains to. There isn't really a story of that action figure that's copyrighted. Um, that's why we're as in a video game, much like in a TV show, movie, or even a sporting event. What is copyrighted is the content of it, the content itself, the story. Uh, and that's what a Let's Play or a streamer is really performing. That's the key differentiator there. Now, just getting back to PewDiePie for a minute here. You know, his particular case may never end up in court, but at some point, one of these cases like this will end up in court. And if the court rules how I think they're going to rule against streamers, then I think there are going to be massive repercussions for the entire online streaming community. Gone will be the days of the Wild Wild West here where anybody can simply go out and buy a capture card and capture device and start up their own stream. Now, I don't necessarily think the game companies want this to ever end up in court because it has the potential to disrupt a massive zero-cost marketing arm for them. But the fact is, is that if it becomes settled IP law that lets plays and streams of games as a violation of copyright, then game companies will have to start cracking down and protecting their IP because, frankly, IP rights are only good if you protect them. That's why you see Sega go out, or it's why you see Nintendo go out and, and protect their copyright claims against every Tom, Dick, and Harry that has anything to do with Nintendo Online. Uh, and while Sega is sort of held up as the, uh, you know, the, the benevolent... Uh, opposite to Nintendo, I guarantee if you went out and started, uh, you know, producing Sega games and, and uh, you know, games featuring Sonic and, and selling them on the street corner, they would come down on you just as hard. Um, but again, if, if IP law changes based on a court decision, it means major changes to the YouTube landscapes. It means major changes to the Twitch business model. <laughs> So would would publishers? Do you think if this did go to uh, go to court and it was found that let's plays are in fact copyright violation, do you anticipate? And maybe there's a legal term for it, but would there be cases that would happen periodically every ten years or so, however long you have to, um, whatever that span of time is that you would have to uh, uh, sort of fight for your copyright? Do you figure there would be, almost be like these? Um, example cases every once in a while the publishers would just randomly pick some YouTuber and say uh, you know what I gotta maintain my copyright so unfortunately you're the poor soul that I'm going to uh, sue uh, this this decade um, and next decade it's gonna be someone else just so I can have on paper a trail of me saying I am protecting my copyright or would you have to basically do that across the board and, cons- and basically uh, sue every single person who's doing it as much as you possibly can well, I think you'd probably see some of those make an example cases like you see happen with file sharing and peer-to-peer stuff. Um, but I do think that the market would adapt fairly quickly and outlets like YouTube and Twitch would institute policies to force legitimization. 
Um, maybe it's requiring content creators to have copies of their licensing agreement form on file with them before being able to do let's plays or streams for you know a given publisher or whatever. And again, publishers won't want this marketing avenue to go away. So it's in their interest as well to help uh, do whatever it takes to legitimize it if and when mm. the law ever gets settled here. You, sir, are a master of unlocking. <laughs> but I'm cheap. That's true. Ah, oh, man. Well, that's – I hope uh, I hope everyone out there um, got as much from this conversation as I did. Um, that was super, super interesting, and I think that's something that not a whole lot of video game podcasts are uh, approaching that kind of angle with this story. So I, I personally appreciate it. I hope the listeners appreciate it. Um, and you could show your appreciation, listeners, if you uh, reach out to us on Twitter individually. Um, I am Caleb J. Ross at Twitter, and uh, the smart one is at VG Collectaholic on Twitter. And you can find us collectively at MOU Podcast on Twitter, also mastersofunlocking.com. And you can find us on Facebook, Masters of Unlocking, and also iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, all of those uh, places. Uh, the cartridgeclub.org definitely check out cartridgeclub.org go to their forums hang out with us talk with us uh, and provide us feedback on this episode provide us feedback on what we're doing so far tell us what you like tell us what you don't like uh, and also tell us how near automata is pronounced uh, and if you answer near automata um, I'm gonna I'm gonna sue you for copyright infringement <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I, I pronounced it seven different ways just in this <laughs> podcast alone I'm, I'm surprised no one has said does it get does do you, do you guys get annoyed that you both pronounce it so distinctly differently? Um, but it could also be that that people just assume. Um, I don't know. They assume the worst. So I, I hope my threat of of suing for copyright infringement is is um, a, a an accurate uh, takeaway from this conversation that we've had. I'm pretty sure I understand copyright uh, infringement now. So uh, I'm, I think I'm good to go. I think we need another class. Nope, nope. I'm I'm 100 on board. I'm ready to take the bar. Uh, that's I, I I think that's a real term. That's a real legal term. So I can do that. You've done well. <laughs> You've done well, Padawan. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you all for listening so much. Uh, please, we come out biweekly, like I said uh, earlier. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Tell your friends about us. Uh, and uh, hopefully they're still friends after they listen to the first few episodes of The Masters of Unlocking. Thank you.